Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at the different ways we get around, from walking, riding or in cars, buses, trains or planes. I'm David Brown and in this program we have some news stories including Hyundai's fuel cell truck goes from trial to commercialisation, car sales for April 2023, growth is with the rich and the poor, and naming the Ray Wedgwood Bridge, honour where honour is due. Some listener feedback, one person's first car was the awkwardly shaped Renault 12, and in our feature story, the question of how long is the duration of a yellow light in traffic signals prompted a chat with our traffic engineering expert, covering issues such as signal phases, why don't we call it the amber light anymore, and what impact does the length of yellow lights and all red periods have on drivers? We'll squeeze in some motoring minutes as well, the Haval H6 and the Pajero Sport. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or our Facebook and Instagram. Just look up Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 6th of May 2023, and we began with the news. After extensive trials, the Hyundai Motor Company has premiered its Exeunt fuel cell prime mover, Class 8 fuel cell electric model, for commercial operations in the North American market. The model they showed at the Advanced Clean Transportation Expo was a 6x4 prime mover equipped with two 90kW hydrogen fuel cell systems and a 350kW electric motor. Its gross combination weight is just over 30 tonnes, and it offers a driving range of over 720 kilometres per charge, even when fully loaded. The company aims to foster partnerships and future businesses to provide fleet operation solutions for hydrogen truck customers and expand the hydrogen value chain in the United States. First launched in 2020, the Exeunt fuel cell heavy vehicle has been deployed in five countries, Switzerland, Germany, Israel, Korea and New Zealand, and has successfully accumulated over 6.4 million kilometres so far. Hyundai Motors shared its outlook for an eco-friendly commercial business incubation project at Metaplant America, their dedicated electric vehicle factory being built in Georgia. They plan to produce up to 300,000 electric vehicles annually. Ken Ramirez, Executive Vice President and Head of Global Commercial Vehicle and Hydrogen Fuel Cell Business at Hyundai Motor, said, We firmly believe that hydrogen is one of the most powerful and pragmatic solutions for achieving our vision of emission-free mobility as a fundamental pillar for a sustainable society. Australian car sales figures for April 2023, as compiled by the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, again reinforced the trend of the increasing number of electric vehicles. EVs accounted for 8% of sales in April, which is well up from the 1.1% of April 2022. If you add in the number of hybrid vehicles, the increase has been from 9.5% to 15.4%. SUVs and light commercial vehicles accounted for over three quarters of the sales, but the strength is in SUVs, with particular growth in expensive models in the small, large and upper large categories, and large growth in the medium-sized SUVs across the full price range. 
for the month, four-wheel drive utes are down 15% and two-wheel drive utes are down 18%. But again, the large and more expensive pickups showed a 24% increase, although the overall numbers are small. The word is out that the bridge over the M1 National Highway north of Sydney at Mount White will soon be signposted as the Ray Wedgwood Bridge. The significance of this is that Ray Wedgwood was a public servant, not a politician or a well-connected person in the community. Overdrive did a story on Ray soon after he passed away in 2020. His career was with the Department of Main Roads in New South Wales, where he became the Chief Engineer of Bridges. Not only did he oversee good engineering design, but he also had a passion for the aesthetics of bridges. A director with the road authority at the time, Ken Dobinson, described Ray as follows. He was not an, a dominant feature as such. He was just the, what you would describe as the quiet achiever. Therefore, he was a very quiet person, but a very competent and able person. And, of course, in due course, by the time he left the government, he was probably viewed as the preeminent structural engineer in this country. And that has been the news. We continue with our feedback from listeners on the first car that they had, or at least one that they were driving 40 years ago. And we had an email from Grant from Tamworth, who listens to us on the podcast. But to help us talk our way through that, I have on the line our good friend, Alan Zervis from GayCarboys.com. G'day, Alan. David, how are you? Very well, thank you. Now, Grant did write to us and he said, His first car was a yellow Renault 12, about a 1969 model, bought after I'd finished uni, ready for my first job. Somehow it seemed to rev more freely on my way home from Amaru Park Raceway rather than going there. I like that. I think think the spirit of the race course had got into his veins. He did say when I detailed it for a trade-in, I wondered why I was selling it. Do you remember the looks of those? Very, very strange car, but I think Renaults in those days were strange. It was uh, the Peugeots. Uh, I think that was around, what, 504 era or thereabouts. Mm. Ah, yes. Very odd, odd-looking cars. It's just French cars have just always had a look. But I suspect, David, that the viewer or the listener wasn't actually taking his car on the race course because I don't think it would have gone fast enough to corner. Although they had a series for them. Did they? They did, just racing the 12. I always thought their shape looked trapezoidal. You know, it's sort of, it wasn't square. It might have had a horizontal roof and, and, and you know, floor plan line, but the boot was and, and bonnet was very squarish, but not square 90 degrees, you know, that sloped down. I think what they did was that they they prioritised the internal space. So if you look at the rear door, it's actually quite long ah. for a car of the era, and, and the 504 was the same. I think the actual, was it the roofline actually went up a bit at the back, as opposed to the modern trend of going, you know, sloping down a bit? Oh, I think it looks like it's going down because it's actually probably more, you know, sort of level all the way along, as opposed to now, you know, I'm in an EV6 GT this week mm. from Kia and the, the back uh, roof slopes down to almost the rear bumper bar. Of course, Renault also at the time, or just before that, had the 16, the Renault 16. 
I always thought they reminded me. Do you remember the Citroen, the little the little Citroen of the time? I just can't remember the name of them at the moment, but not the CX, the other one. There's a GS. GS, thank you. That's it, GS. Also the BX too, wasn't there? There was one with a funny little straight back. That's right. Well, look, I had two of those. They came after that. And uh, it was in an era when Citroen, uh, indeed, all the French car makers were, uh, how can I put this? Their their plastic was uh, not of premium quality. <laughs> what was your first car, Alan? Do you know, I still think about that car now and wish I'd never sold it. It was a 1978 Toyota Celica. So beautiful brown interior just a beautiful little thing. And it had that sort of um, Corolla orange, uh, a, a faded version of that. And, you know, I felt like a king. The Mustang back uh, model, but I had the coupe version of it. Neat as a pin, little clear uh, lights at the front. It was just a beautiful brown interior, just a beautiful little thing. And it had that sort of... Um, Corolla orange, uh, a, a faded version of that. And, you know, I felt like a king. It went through various stages that looked almost sublime to the ridiculous. Maybe not sublime, but yours in, in the 78 was very much an, a neat car, wasn't it? The first model that had the sloping backwards orange lights at the front, but it was the interior, I think. It just had that, oh... That almost a 60s feel to the uh, 60s sports car feel to the interior. They'd updated it, but they hadn't ruined it. You're listening to Overdrive. The Haval H6 isn't a model that usually comes to mind for mid sized SUVs, but we drove the hybrid ultimate version a few weeks ago and were really impressed. They now have added another hybrid version to the range, the H6 Lux. Priced at 42490 drive away, the H6 Hybrid comes with a 1.5-litre turbo petrol engine mated to a 130-kilowatt electric drive motor and combined outputs of 179 kilowatts and 530 newton-metres. This delivers fuel efficiency of around 5.2 litres per 100 k's using regular unleaded fuel. The Haval Hybrid has multiple drive modes including EV, Series, Parallel and Regeneration and is surprisingly zippy around town and has relaxed freeway cruising. Even though the Lux model is the entry model, it comes with a healthy list of safety and comfort features as standard and a 5-star ANCAP safety rating. It's also backed by a 7-year unlimited kilometre warranty, 5-year roadside assist, 5-year capped price servicing and 8-year battery warranty. You're listening to Overdrive. We had some feedback on the radio station the other day asking about what is the length of time for the yellow or amber period in traffic lights. Now, our good friend Alan Finlay is a traffic engineer and has been for many, many years and an expert in many things, including the design and use and operation of traffic signals. And he joins us now. Alan, have I got it right? Is it amber or yellow? Well, it used to be amber, but uh, in the 1980s sometime, I think we changed the terminology to more closely align with international standards, and so we now use the term yellow. Amber was always, I don't know, it was almost esoteric in a way, wasn't it? It, it had a certain eliteness about it. 
Yes, I guess because of the gym, so uh, it line, lines up with the uh, description of the gym. I don't think people would think of it as a gym when they get it. That's probably not. Now, Alan, uh, you've been uh, traffic signals in in Sydney, for example. How long have we had them? When was the first? Uh, the first set of signals in Sydney was switched on in on 13 October 1933, and that was at the corner of Kent Street and Market Street in the CBD. There was a reason they picked that spot, wasn't there? Yes, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it was um, a lot to do with the amount of traffic in those, a lot of, in those days, a lot of horse-drawn traffic as well that was coming up the hill in Market Street from the docks, which are at the bottom of Market Street near um, the old Piermont Bridge. And I think there was some concern about um, how it was taking a long time for traffic to negotiate the hill. Um, and uh, obviously there would have been police on point duty prior to the signals going in. And so they thought they could probably make it more efficient and probably safer by having these newfangled three-colour light signals. I think from the other side too, the police though wanted to say that they wouldn't have traffic lights, wouldn't have the understanding of seeing a vehicle that's got momentum coming up the hill. If they stopped, then they would have to start, do a hill start quite literally, and uh, there was some suggestion that that was the police way of saying, no, you still need us rather than new technology. Yes, that's right. There were some misgivings about it. And uh, I think they were also, there were con some concerns about whether the detectors, which had been installed to actually detect the vehicles going in each direction uh, along the road, would be reliable enough to um, hold the green signal uh, for as long as was necessary for the uh, the traffic coming up the hill. Were they loop detectors? No, they were some very old-style tube detectors, the rubber tube detectors that used to go across the road. They had a, a rubber tube, uh, almost like an air, uh, an air pipe, and that uh, pushed some air into a bottle, and that bottle had an uh, electric contact plate in it, and that's what uh, completed a circuit and then uh, told the controller that there was a vehicle there. Because the loop detectors are wires in the ground in a loop that detects a magnetic effect? Yes, the loop detector, it's an inductive loop detector, so it's a, a loop of several turns of wire buried in the road pavement about 80 millimetres below the surface, and it acts as a metal detector. Um, when, when the metal goes over the, the loop of wire in the road, it changes the frequency of a tuned circuit, uh, and that's what the controller then responds to. Do you know they developed a loop detector principle to try and identify Japanese submarines going through the heads and tried to pick up a, a metal device? It wasn't particularly effective, and, and obviously some got through. It... I hadn't heard that story. Yeah, so that, that's news to me, but it doesn't surprise me. I'm sure there are lots of... Uh, applications, uh, wartime applications, that gradually found their way into uh, civilian applications. How many signals have we got in Sydney now? I don't know the exact number, but I believe it's now across New South Wales, uh, I believe it's now in excess of 5,000. The length of amber, is there a standard time for that? 
No, it uh, it's variable these days. I mean, in in the early days prior to the early nineteen eighties, uh, amber was always fixed at three seconds. Um, I think it was determined a long time ago, probably when traffic signals first started being used, and it was probably calculated on the basis of how long it would take a typical vehicle to stop if it were travelling at the then typical speed limits of probably. Um, 30 miles per hour, I guess, in the in the early days. Um, we, the, the DMR, did some research in the early 80s because um, there was a general recognition that uh, three seconds was probably not long enough on some roads, um, particularly as traffic speed started to increase and we had um, traffic flows increasing, speed limits started to increase on some roads. And so uh, there was a move to study whether we could reduce the incidence of red light running by providing a longer yellow period in some circumstances. Was there any particular circumstance? Was there a classic example where people felt that there was a need or professionals felt a need to increase the time? Yes, there was one particular example that um, spurred this on, and that was a set of signals at the end of a fairly steep downward ramp. It was at the uh, temporary end of the Sydney-Newcastle freeway. People who are probably of a certain age will remember that the Sydney-Newcastle freeway was built in stages. And one of the first stages was from Barara to Hawkesbury River. And in fact, it was a tollway uh, in those days. And at the end of the... uh, uh, Hawks, at the Hawkesbury River end, we were still using the old Hawkesbury River Bridge rather than new, the new freeway bridge. So the traffic from the freeway had to go down a ramp on to get onto the old Hawkesbury River Bridge. That ramp was quite steep and um, it was signal controlled because the traffic had to merge with uh, any traffic that was still using the old Pacific Highway. So there was a set of signals there and one of the engineers that was working for DMT at the time, the Department of Motor Transport, devised a system of multiple loop detectors on the ramp to better measure the likelihood that there were spaces in the traffic and therefore to try and choose a time where it was safest to terminate the green signal for the freeway ramp. He went at four seconds and is that often used? This detector terminology, or the detector system was really trying to limit the incidence of what they call the dilemma zone. The the dilemma zone is that area where the driver has to make a decision, do I stop or do I continue? This system of detectors was trying to minimise the number of times the drivers would have to make that decision. But in the process of doing that, they also looked at the timing of the yellow signal and worked out that um, four seconds, I think, was used, uh, was a more reasonable time to cater for those vehicles and particularly heavy vehicles that would have to stop on that that downhill ramp. If it is too long, do you think people may become complacent and more ready to push their limits and turn on the yellow or, or the red? Absolutely. It's really important that the yellow signal is no longer than what it absolutely needs to be because drivers very quickly work out through experience that they have... Um, much time, uh, an excessive amount of time to clear the intersection. 
and they, t- particularly in peak, year, peak periods, they tend to use it all. So it's actually counterproductive to keep on making the yellow and the, um, and the all red signal, or the all red period, longer and longer. Drivers very quickly learn that and they tend to use it all rather than stopping on the yellow, which is what the road traffic law says. You must stop on the yellow signal unless it's unsafe to do so. You spoke about detection and loop detectors have proven to be very effective. You've talked about that we are trialling, continuing to develop the idea of perhaps using video. There is a major review of the SCAT system, $60 million they're talking about doing it. Do you see detection in the future uh, as evolving and perhaps changing or perhaps getting better? That is, understanding what vehicles are where and what the system should change accordingly? I think there's every likelihood that at some point in the future, someone will develop a a more reliable video camera-based detection system. The challenges to date have been that uh, in different lighting conditions and in different weather conditions, such as really heavy rain, uh, the video camera detection system has not had sufficient resolution to be able to accurately detect particularly the spacing between vehicles and and how fast those vehicles might be travelling. But I'm not closely associated with the hardware side of things these days, so I I can't speak with any authority about where Hmm. some of those trials might be. But one of the potential benefits would be if we were able to better understand what the approaching traffic looks like, because one of the limitations of the existing detectors used in the SCAT system is that they are detectors at the stop line. So if you like, what the detector sees is a bit like someone, if you could imagine this, lying under the road and looking up through a glass plate through a fairly narrow slit and just seeing whether there was a vehicle there or not and and what the spacing between those vehicles looked like. It doesn't tell us much about what's happening on the approach to the signals, let's say 100 metres away or 150 metres away. Sometimes we can get that by looking at an upstream intersection, if there's one close by, we can look at the detectors at the upstream intersection and work out what's about to come at the target intersection. Uh, And sometimes we use cue detectors if it's a particularly critical approach, let's say a freeway off-ramp where we don't want the cue on the freeway off-ramp to get back onto the freeway. So there are other uh, techniques that can be used, but we do have a bit of a limitation in that we don't really know what's coming, if you like, down the chute uh, distant from the intersection. People have said that when the light goes green, the shortest measurement of time is the di- the time between when the light goes green and the taxi behind you blows their horn. Yes, yes, yes that's right. And people say, oh, but that's, you know, it's only a half a second. Why worry about it? I think there's another issue there. I think it's that people have lost faith that they'll ever get through on that phase. If anyone delays, you run the grave risk of being caught, of not getting through. I once didn't get through an intersection. I was the second car in the queue because the first car in the queue was obviously reading their phone or something. Yes, yes, yes. I blew the horn, and and clearly it was a minor street crossing a major street, so it was never going to get a long green time. But the fact of the matter is I had to wait another phase. Yes, that's right. What's a typical time 
it seems like an eternity, but what is the typical time a full phase takes from when I get a red time to when I will get the green? It obviously varies in situations. Well, what would be the maximum? Well, I think in Sydney, the maximum cycle length, which is the time it takes to from one green on, let's say, on your approach to come back to the next green on your approach, in peak periods, the typical maximum cycle time in Sydney would be 150 seconds, which is two and a half minutes. So definitely seems like a long time, if, particularly if you've just missed out uh, under the circumstances you described. It can be very frustrating. But people used to report they would call up the, the number that's on the, um, the side of the uh, grey boxes and uh, they would say, I've been waiting five minutes or I've been waiting 10 minutes, and um, that was never accurate. <laughs> the, the only time that it would be longer than that would be if there were an emergency intervention, uh, let's say a medical escort or a police escort, sometimes VIPs, who uh, have been given priority to go right through a, a whole network of intersections uh, for security purposes or medical escort purposes. And there is the facility within the transport management centre for the signals to be manually overridden and for um, the operator to hold the green for as long as they like, basically. To complete their crossing, that's the flashing red, which often scares some people, but the reality is it's the yellow equivalent for the pedestrian. Absolutely. The, the, the green walk signal or green man signal, in theory, could be as short as one second. Its sole purpose is just to allow the pedestrian to basically step off the curb and start their crossing. It's the flashing red man uh, period, which is the safety period, and that allows the pedestrian, even if they've just stepped off the curb, to safely walk across the road at a speed of typically about 1.2 metres per second. That's, that's the usual guideline that's used. So the longer the crossing, the longer the flashing red man period, but the walk signal would nearly always remain the same. There are some exceptions where there are one-way streets and where there is a, uh, a crossing parallel to a main road which has very little turning traffic through it. Sometimes we allow very long walk, walk times, almost the whole of the, uh, the main road green time. But generally speaking, the walk time is no longer than about six or eight seconds. Alan, that's been wonderful, and I think it reflects that engineering involves a lot of understanding of human behaviour and how it works and how to maximise it. Given that it can never be perfect, it has to be dealing with a whole pile of different inputs. So I thank you very much for your time. Not at all, David. My pleasure. And that's Alan Finlay, who is a traffic engineer and has been one that has been for many years of uh, understanding and helping develop the Sydney Coordinated Actuated Transport System, I think I've got that right, which has been accepted worldwide as one of the great systems for traffic control. This was an edited version of our chat together. The full interview is available on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. Based on the Mitsubishi Triton Ute, the Pajero Sport is a mid-sized four-wheel drive wagon. In early 2022, Mitsubishi introduced a new top-spec model, the GSR. This model basically features black highlights everywhere. 
There's black on the exterior and interior accents, 18-inch alloy wheels, front and rear bumper garnish and roof rails. The GSR is exclusively available in two colours, black mica and white diamond, the latter also featuring a black roof. Like other Pajero Sport four-wheel drive models, the new GSR comes with Mitsubishi's Super Select 2 four-wheel drive system. This advanced system has four drive modes and four off-road modes available as well. The system works well and has been tested over many years in gruelling Dakar conditions. The Pajero Sport is powered by a 2.4-litre turbo diesel engine with reasonable power and torque and a smooth 8-speed sports automatic transmission. Mitsubishi Pajero Sport GSR is priced from $62,440 plus the usual costs. I'm Rob Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Alan Finlay, Alan Zervis, Rob Fraser and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or you can send us a comment or a suggestion to feedback at drivenmedia.com.au or leave a message on our answering system 028003. 4295. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.